Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Kieran Setia, the author of the new book, Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. Kieran teaches philosophy at MIT, working mainly in ethics, epistemology, and the philosophy of mind. He is also the author of Midlife, A Philosophical Guide, and has a philosophy podcast called Five Questions. In the conversation, Kieran and I discuss finding our way, philosophy and temperament, philosophy as self-help, loneliness and grief, hope and despair, how to live a good life, and so much more. You can learn more about Kieran's work at ksetia.net. All right, without any further delay, I now bring you the wise and gracious Kieran Setia. Kieran, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure. I've Looking forward to it, and I, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to come on. And today we're going to be talking about your new book, which is titled Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. But before we get into the book, we generally start off with some sort of question of how you initially came to maybe find your way into philosophy. It's a good question. I, there's a question for me about how far back to go. I mean, so mm -hmm. I remember when I was very young, you know, six or seven or eight asking philosophical questions without really knowing they were philosophical questions about why anything exists at all and why why I shouldn't worry that it's all going to go out of existence in the next moment, how I could be sure that that wasn't going to happen. I didn't really know that was philosophy until I started reading the horror sci-fi author H.P. Lovecraft. This was when I was a teenager. And he, in his fiction, asks a lot of philosophical questions. So it, his basic trope is something that seems supernatural turns out to be alien science. And there's a lot of questions about the limits of human knowledge and the true nature of reality. And he read a lot of philosophers. So I started reading the philosophers he read. And that was the point in which I thought, okay, what I'm really interested in here are philosophical questions. And then I, you know, I went on to study it at, at, at school. Did you know that basically walking into freshman year of college, how how clear was that path? Pretty much. I mean, the British system, I, I grew up in the UK, and mm. normally you have to pick, in effect, your major when you apply to college. You can sometimes change, but you, you in general, there's a lot of pressure to figure out what you're doing in advance. So I applied to study philosophy mm. when I was you know 16, and I... I wasn't exactly committed at that point, but I pretty much knew I was interested enough to to study it for the next few years. And I think I probably also had a, the beginnings of a desire to not stop thinking about these questions. Mm. How would someone know if there's anybody listening that is discerning a particular fork, fork in the road? Does anything come to mind? 
I think if you find philosophical questions about the nature of reality or how we know anything or how we should live or how society should be organized, gripping and gripping enough that you keep thinking about them and they don't let go of you even amidst the the pressures of daily life and the need to to get on with things, that's a sign that you'll get a lot out of studying philosophy, reading philosophers, and whether you're going to become you know a student of philosophy or a professor of philosophy or not i think you know give in to those impulses you know read read philosophers and find out if it's if it's really right for you and i think one thing one piece of advice i would give is often when you first read philosophers it's very difficult like most of the great historical philosophers it's not easy to start reading kant or even david hume who's a pretty good writer is writing in 18th century english or reading plato not as easy as as you might hope i think one thing to tell yourself when you're when you're doing it is that that's uh, that's the experience that even seasoned professionals have like it's not easy for anyone so it's not a sign that you're not apt for philosophy if when you start reading philosophers you think this is really hard that just means you're you're doing it right. That's that's good to hear. I appreciate that. I just did an episode with an an author wrote a book about Kant, and I was feeling that way. Very very difficult philosophy. But you have a podcast that I've been getting into, and I've really enjoyed called Five Questions. So I'm curious, you know, what led you to start this podcast, and if you could share a little bit about Five Questions. Sure. Yeah. It, it the the origin story is a complete cliche, which was the pandemic hit. <laughs> I was cut off from hanging out with my philosopher friends and talking philosophy informally. I was feeling too freaked out and too distracted to really do serious philosophical writing or reading. But I wanted to have a, a kind of social connection with the philosophical community and with other philosophers. And so, yep, I started a podcast like, you know, everyone else at the beginning of the Mm -hmm. pandemic. But part of the idea of the five questions format was that I was going to ask people slightly more irreverent personal questions. It was inspired by the philosopher and novelist Iris Murdoch, who's one of my, my heroes. And she says she has two remarks that I built the podcast around. One is that to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So I asked philosophers how their temperament influences their work. And she also says it's always a good question to ask about any philosopher, what is he afraid of? So I asked philosophers, what are you afraid of? And then I asked a bunch of other questions like, do you really believe your philosophical views? Or if you weren't a philosopher, what would you do instead? And we do talk a bit about philosophy, sometimes more, sometimes less, but it's about philosophers as people, and my sense is, you know, most people are pretty interesting, actually, but philosophers often have some kind of interesting story about how they ended up devoting their life to this. I'm curious if you could say a bit more about that question of philosophy and temperament. Why do you see that as important and interesting? Well, one of the reasons I like that question is that people take it in lots of different directions. So one Mm -hmm. kind of thought is, in so some philosophers worry that insofar as their temperament is influencing their philosophical positions that's illicit it's a reason to to be self-critical it's we should try to expunge that from our philosophical work and be totally impersonal i don't myself think that's really possible i think even in quite abstract areas of philosophy people's temperaments and personalities affect what they find plausible or what kinds of theories they're attracted to. Do they like very simple, pristine theories that tell you, yeah, 
a lot of the data is noisy and you just got to forget about it? Or do they like gravitate towards theories that are extremely intricate and complicated? But it comes out most centrally in ethics, where I think when people are doing moral and political philosophy, the the lines between their philosophical reflection on how to live or how we together should live and their own character, their own temperament, their own sort of more basic ways of seeing the world are very porous. And so mm. I, I think there's no real avoiding the fact that people's temperamental outlooks play a role in what kinds of philosophical visions they defend. Mm. Well, I love it. I appreciate you sharing a bit about that. And I'm, I'm glad you started it. I've definitely enjoyed it. Thank you. How do you think about differentiating self-help from philosophy? How do you how do you think about that, Kieran? It's a good question. So I, the last two books I've written, the Life is Hard, and then the book before that was called Midlife, a Philosophical Guide, they both have been described as philosophical self-help. And the truth is, I don't really resist that. I, I don't I'm not as down on self-help as a genre as some philosophers and other intellectuals might be. I, in general, I like self-help books and I've got a lot out of reading them. So I, I, there again, I think the lines are more porous than some people might think. So there's a, a long tradition in philosophy, really the longest tradition is one on which doing moral philosophy, thinking philosophically about ethics and how to live is supposed to make life better. It's not just a detached reflection in which you say, oh, let me understand anthropologically, as it were, what's going on with people when they think about how to live. It's supposed to be a, a, a path to self-improvement. And it's a fairly recent innovation in philosophy, so 17th, 18th century, where models of scientific understanding get imported into philosophy and you get this idea that a, a certain kind of moral philosophy should be more detached than that it should just anatomize moral experience without changing your moral life in the way that you might expect moral philosophy to do and i i'm inclined to to think that we should go back to and recover this earlier tradition on which it, it is part of the enterprise of philosophical thinking about how to live to make people's lives better. So on that way of thinking, there isn't really a deep divide. I think there, you know, some self-help can be glib and superficial. And I think there's a bit of a tendency, this is maybe a, a, a kind of longer thread, but I think there's a tendency for people to think of the goal as just personal satisfaction or their own happiness, rather than thinking more broadly about living well or living a good life. So there are things I would push back against in some self-help literature. But the idea of self-help is one that strikes me as basically admirable. I mean, it's a good a good thing to aim for. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of, I, I think, the uh, authors of The Good Life Method called it uh, deep self-help is how they they basically termed it. But I, I think they had a very similar similar take um, I'm curious, as you mentioned, moral philosophy and the good life. There are many philosophers that focus on on virtue, but your book looks at maybe some of the difficulties of life, things like loneliness and grief. How does that help us to live a good life? I think that the there's a kind of tendency in contemporary self help culture and also in you know, on social media to encourage people to focus on 
that living their best life, living living the dream, and to convey a kind of false impression of how attainable that is. But it also has deep philosophical roots. So there's there's a kind of way of thinking about how to live that goes back to Plato and Aristotle theorizing, you know, a utopian just city or the ideal life, on which you start with this ideal and then you think, okay, I'll aim for that. But actually for most of us, most of the time, an ideal life is not a realistic aspiration. So it's kind of demoralizing to have that <laughs> as your goal. And it also doesn't give you that much guidance. If you start by thinking about the ideal life, it, it's not that likely that that template is going to tell you what to do when you're lonely or when uh, you've lost someone you love or when you're failing or when things are going wrong. And my sense is that when I have ethical conversations with people, the kind of conversations I have with friends about how to live almost always start from a problem. They almost always start from something going wrong in our lives. And the question is, how do I deal with adversity in the right kind of way? So I, I think there's a kind of lack of realism and often a, a kind of lack of uh, forgiveness for human frailty and the difficulty of life in mm -hmm. starting with the ideal and so what I, that's why I set out to write a book that's really a, a book about how to live better. It's, a, it's not a depressing book, I think, but it's a, it's a book that says, what would philosophical reflection on the good life look like if it never lost touch with the fact and the different ways in which life is hard that we actually grapple with in, in our kind of difficult moments? Beautiful. Well, I love the approach and I've really enjoyed, I guess I, I would call it some sort of search for, for wisdom. Like I have a couple notes here for a couple chapters to get into, but loneliness and, and hope. But these are topics that the consensus is, is not clear. There's a diverse set of thoughts and opinions, and you really explore it from so many different angles. And I guess maybe to begin with loneliness, you write that one can be by oneself in quiet solitude without feeling lonely, and one can be lonely in a crowd. You quote people like Hume, who says solitude is the greatest punishment, and then you have others like the poet Rilke, who calls us to love solitude. How do you make sense of these diverse experiences of, of loneliness? Well, I, th I think partly by making distinctions of the kind that you just pointed us towards to say, look, there's the, the, the condition of being on your own, but that needn't make you feel lonely. And in, in fact, you can feel lonely when you're not on your own. So it's just useful to distinguish the, the kind of descriptive sense of, of being on your own from the idea of loneliness as a, a form of suffering. And, what, and it, the suffering involves some kind of frustration of our social needs, our need for friendship, or at least acknowledgement, recognition from other people. And so the first thing is, I think, to bring into view what exactly loneliness, what the problem of loneliness is. And in a way, what that leads us into is towards something positive. Namely, if we want to understand what the problem with loneliness is, what we would need to understand is, at least in a broad sense of friendship, what the value of friendship is. Why do human beings need friends What's the importance of friendship? Where does the value of friendship come from? And by doing that, we can figure out both why loneliness hurts so much, why it's so painful, and hopefully, and you know, at the end of that that chapter, I suggest some practical things that thinking about the the sources of loneliness and the value of friendship can can tell us about how to 
escape our loneliness and what kind of practical moves we can make there. How do you make sense of, of what people might call a, a connection crisis or an epidemic of, of loneliness even prior to the pandemic? I think it's very complicated. So one of the things that this is a case where the pandemic really changed my relationship to the topic, because during the pandemic, it was clear that loneliness was a crisis. And even after the pandemic, I think a lot of people have felt difficulty reconnecting to their previous social world, have, have felt that they, they've lost the, the muscle, has atrophied somehow, or people have now become more, more isolated. People work from home. The, the social fabric is frayed. I was all set when I was originally writing the book to be much more skeptical about this narrative. So there is a, a narrative that's very easy to buy into on which even before the pandemic, loneliness was rampant and that uh, there's various studies by social scientists that suggest that people are have are much more lonely, have fewer close connections than they used to have even 20 or 30 years ago. And there's an, a natural narrative on which you say, well, you know, industrial capitalism has made us into individual atoms consuming privately or accumulating private goods. Naturally, that's disconnected us from one another. And actually, the, when I was researching that chapter of the book, I found both of those data points were really complicated. So one of the key studies that gets cited a lot in the American Sociological Review, I think it says that you know, three times as many people said they had no one to talk to about difficult things between, I think, you know, 1985 and 2004, something in a 20-year period. It turned out that the, the, that was a statistical artifact. So Claude Fisher, who's a sociologist mm -hmm. at Berkeley, pointed out that they had changed the order in which the questions were answered. And when they flipped it back later, it, 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 this result disappeared. So actually, I was like, ah, it's not so clear that loneliness is as rampant as people fear. And, and the same is true of the historical narrative, that the history of, of social change and how it affects our isolation from one another. It's very complicated because actually, if you go back sort of pre-industrial times into the kind of feudal times or medieval period, people had very little leisure time. And so the idea of friendship for pleasure or relaxation actually came into much sharper view in the, the very period in, in modernity at which capitalism was restructuring our, our social relations. So I was all set to say, well, you know, this is much more complicated than it seems. Let's not freak out about an epidemic of loneliness. And then, yeah, the pandemic hit. So I think right now we are facing a, a, a real crisis here. Hmm. But maybe even if um, loneliness, even if there was, you know, someone out there that was had some skepticism maybe, you know, about how big of an issue it is. Um, there's someone that you mentioned in the book as a favorite philosopher of yours, Diogenes the Cynic. Yeah. And uh, maybe you could share a, a little bit about why, but this this idea of being a citizen of the world, to me, there's something beautiful ab about that. And it, it, it runs basically counter to... Um, the book together where the, the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy wrote that as he was going around meeting people, you know, that, that had homes, but felt homeless. Uh -huh. It seems like Diogenes is pointing to maybe the opposite of that, of being a citizen in the world. Am I making too much out of that? No, I think there's something really 
profound there that Diogenes was onto, and it connects with what I what I think about loneliness, which is that there's much more continuity between a kind of a moral attitude of respect and recognition towards other people and love and friendship. So you, in a way, I, I think that the, what happens when we're in a close friendship, where the value comes from, is it's just an amplified version of the recognition of the value of another human being. But that's the value everyone has. I think this is the cosmopolitan thought. Every other human being has that value too. We may not fully realize it. We may not fully appreciate it. But as it were, everyone could be a friend. Everyone has the value that friendship and love recognize. And so I think that cosmopolitan idea suggests precisely that, that everyone matters. And the practical upshot of this, which is interestingly confirmed by sociologists who write about loneliness and human connection, is that to a, to a degree we might not anticipate, when we crave deep friendship, the, the itch can be scratched even by small moments of mutual recognition or little moments of interaction. So the kind of thing you might have with someone who is, in a sense, a stranger, but you recognize as a co-citizen of the world. So you know, one of the studies involved people being they were asked to go up to someone on a train and tell them, ask them a question about themselves and tell them something about themselves. And people were like, I don't really want to do this. I'm not sure it's going to go well. But actually, it almost always did go well. People were not rebuffed. And even that slight moment of connection, just mutual acknowledgement, had a, a lasting effect on their sense of aloneness. And I feel like thinking about my own podcast experience, that was really true. I, it, I Sometimes it was an old friend I connected with, but very often it was someone I talked to for 30 minutes. I didn't really know them beforehand. I haven't spoken to them since. It was not a deep friendship, but I listened to someone for 30 minutes and paid attention to them. And afterwards, I would feel the, the a kind of lasting sense of human connection. So I, I think there is more connection we can find in co-citizenship, in just recognizing the value of other people's lives when they're strangers than, than we might think. And that, you know, that is also, I think, a path out of loneliness, because it's, you know, it's, it's from those beginnings that when you do want friendship, you can sort of begin to forge it. That's beautiful. And I love the podcast example where you could reach out to a stranger and ask to connect. And can I ask you five questions? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Part of what I love about the format is that it, if you have, I mean, you don't, you don't have this uh, exactly. I have like the five question script. So the, the worst case scenario for social anxiety is the conversation peters out. And I say, question three. And there's just, <laughs> it's for someone, you know, it, it really, uh, reduces the stress of social interaction. And it turns out that actually people who work on friendship, sociologists and psychologists, again, will often suggest this as a strategy to just literally go with a list of questions and either take someone you already know, but would like to get closer to, or a stranger and just ask a list of questions. And uh, it's surprisingly effective in in reducing anxiety and making it possible to to forge connection. I love it. How do you think, you know, let me rephrase it another way. You know, if you had someone that, uh, a friend, a loved one, that was feeling a bit homeless, maybe isolated, not as connected, you know, this idea 
of being a citizen in the world, is there a small step? I know you talked about some specific strategies there, but I'm thinking about, you know, even Marcus Aurelius, you know, maybe later in life, writing in his own journal, reminding himself about the interconnectedness all these different analogies, what's good for the bee, what's good for the hive. He's, he's trying to get this into his, into his bones, you know, and his philosophy. How do we do that today? Is there a small step or particular thing that comes to mind? I think it's very contextual. It depends on sort of what yeah. your particular situation is. But I, I do think often what happens when people say do volunteer work or, or just join a club where, where you're, you have this sort of structured relationship and especially when you're helping someone else, when you're reaching out to someone else, I think that, again, involves a kind of recognition of the value of someone else, and they will recognize your value, even if not as a friend, just as a kind of moral being. I think those kinds of connections are already a, a kind of big step towards getting out of the, the catch-22. I mean, part of the problem with loneliness is that once you're once you, if it's the problem of loneliness is that you think your value is unappreciated, you just don't think anyone really sees you, that's frightening and it makes it hard to interact socially. So I think one thing, these little structured interactions like joining a club or, or you know, volunteering at a soup kitchen, for instance, one thing they do is uh, give you a, a kind of structure in which it feels less personal. It doesn't feel quite like you're your being is on the line. So I think that's one way to try to get out of the catch 22, but I think it, it's hard, it, you know, in a, in a different world, this would be like depression and mental health services. One, one of the things that they would, one of the things that we would have social services to address is people's loneliness and, and try try to provide structure because for people to get out of the, the catch 22, because I think it is very hard to lift yourself out of this, even if that's sometimes the, what you have to do. It's so interesting of, on the one hand, being connected, being similar, but then many people have written how we're so very unique. I think about that question that you ask around fear. I've listened to a few episodes over the last couple of days. And even that question of what do you fear that you're asking philosophers, it's very unique. It seems to be there's a lot of uh, a difference there. It's true. This is, I think, one of the a kind of puzzle, philosophical puzzle or, or singularity about connecting with other people, which is, you're right, that simultaneously there's a sense in which we all have something in common our basic humanity that makes us matter, makes us worthy of love. But in every given case, what love appreciates, if it if it was impersonal in that way, it wouldn't really be love. It has to be directed at the particularity of another person. And I think of that in terms of a kind of contrast between the, the ground of love, like what makes love an apt response to begin with, and then what love itself is like, like what the focus of love is. So I think the the basis of it is often just recognition of another human being as a fellow human being but what form that takes is as you say it it involves acknowledgement of someone's particularity and yeah i mean one of the things i th about doing the podcast was it's striking how in a very short space of time 
people differentiate themselves so much that the responses are so different and that patterns start to even just a few questions patterns start to emerge so people i didn't know i would think i kind of have a sense of who you are now and maybe that's an illusion although i kind of think it might be right because when it was someone i was interviewing who i already knew i would have the same sense and i would be able to sort of independently verify that yep they re- no one else but them would have <laughs> answered those questions that way uh and so i think it's it's a genuine feature of even even fairly brief structured interactions that people's individuality is is visible in them and maybe that connects with with hope because there's some unique and diverse views and uh, opinions i i think of nietzsche and the stoics railing against hope and then you have other philosophers and theologians pointing to it as as critical and you talk about in the book that you were a bit suspicious about hope so so what changed and um you know why are thoughts on hope so diverse i think yeah ambivalence is is sort of ever present around hope so on the one hand there's the the kind of idea of the audacity of hope that hope is this thing to be cherished it's we have to cling to it but actually uh, often you think about what people the, the slogans about hope are things like the you know the the Ted Lasso uh slogan from you know the episode it's the hope that kills you like hoping is terrifying if you hope you risk kind of despair and uh there's a a line from Greta Thunberg I quote in the book that she that she uh something she said to the World Economic Forum in Davos which was I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic because there's, there's an anxiety that sitting around and just hoping that things will get better is completely idle. It's, it's completely passive. So I, I was I, I had a very strong sense of the the negative sides of hope, the sense of passivity and danger, the sense that it, it sets you up for for disappointment. What I came to think was that there's a distinction here that we really need to draw between just the attitude of hoping for something, the, the the mixture of thinking, well, this is possible and I want it, which can sometimes be good and sometimes be bad and by itself is totally passive. It doesn't guarantee you're going to do anything, although it might be a precondition of, of taking action. And the virtue of hope. So this it's a distinction that goes back to the uh, medieval theologian Aquinas, who's, who contrasts the, the ir- irascible passion of hope from the theological virtue of hope. And I'm trying to sort of think about what a secular version of this might look like. And the thought is, you know, the virtue is really not about, or really the question is not really, is hope good? Is it bad? Should we hope? Should we despair? Those questions are, are, are not really the right questions to ask. The question that the virtue of hope tries to answer is, you know, what should I hope for? Where should I direct my hope? And I think understood in that way, the virtue is something we really need and can unequivocally sort of affirm, even as we acknowledge that having answered that question, having figured out what we should realistically hope for in dealing with our loneliness, say, or the injustice of the world or whatever it might be, hope by itself, we should sort of not forget that that's not the end point. It's the, it creates space for action, but I, I think we have to maintain a kind of acknowledgement of the ways in which hope can seem like it's enough by itself when really it isn't. It, its point is just to create space for something else. 
Would you agree with, say, Nietzsche or the Stoics from that basically kind of narrow perspective that hope maybe is not such a good thing? I think the problem is that it is, I think, a precondition of action. So I think if you think all it really takes to count as hoping for something is that you think that's possible. It's not guaranteed to happen. And I have some influence over it maybe, but it's not, I can't easily just do it. And then I really want it and I'm attached to it. I think if that's what hope is, then anytime we strive for something that we really hope to achieve, or just (laughs) that begs the question that we really want to achieve and we think we might not succeed, we thereby count as hoping for it. So I, I think there's a way in which it's not, it's sort of a non-negotiable condition of engaging with the world that we have the, that we hope to make a difference or hope to make progress or hope to get somewhere. So in that sense, I think just saying hope is negative, just taking a critical attitude to it towards it can't be the end of the story. I think what is right is that hope by itself is not of very much value and it can substitute for action. So I think there's a, if the critique of hope is, look, if you just sit around hoping and not doing anything, it's not worth anything at all. In fact, it's worse than nothing because you're sort of kidding yourself that you're on the right side by, by having, you know, your heart in the right place, but it's just a substitute for action. Then I think it's not good. Or when it, it involves a kind of wishful thinking that, you know, you hope for things in a way that's detached from what's realistically possible. So I, that's why I think that the virtue of hope, to hoping well, has to sort of discipline hope. It has to bring it into line with reality and into the service of action in a way that it might otherwise not be. So so maybe the, the thing to say is that sort of undisciplined hope, unconstrained in that way, it it's, it's a dangerous and possibly negative thing, but it's not, as it were, hopeless. We can we can uh, we can sort of utilize hope, and in a way, I think we need to reorient it in order to make space for for action. So, so my view it remains even at the end more qualified, more ambivalent than than negative. I think it's so important. It's so interesting for for some reason. I've got a, a strange question to throw your way, and maybe it applies to hope, or you could fill in anything there. But what would you say, you know, is left after exploring the topic of hope, for example, so deeply? I mean, meditating on, contemplating, researching. I mean, it's it's clear reading the book that you've thought about this deeply. What do you have at the end of that? You know, how does that influence day to day? For me, there really was a practical upshot to switching from this black and white question, should I hope or despair, to asking, what should I hope for? So I, I, I at least was very prone to to think, looking at you know the news of climate change, to think, to flip between thinking, hey, there was some good news today. Um, you know, the Paris Agreement was signed. I'm hopeful. And then US withdraws despair. And then, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act is passed, hopeful. And then, you know, it turns out it's not as going to be as effective as, as we thought, despair. And so I was very much prone to ask this question, should I be hopeful or should I despair? And I think 
reframing that and saying, no, you're going to hope for something. The question to ask is not, is it good or bad? It's where should I direct my hope? What should I hope for next? That shift really helps me. So when I think about, I'll give you two examples. One is when I think about climate change, I think there's a certain value to having these clear markers, like a two degree cutoff or a 1.5 degree cutoff, because it focuses action. But there's a risk too, because it it actually gets in the way of taking this, what should I hope for graded attitudes? Well, now when I th- I think, well, I you know I hope we can keep global warming to 1.5 degrees. I don't think it's that likely. Okay, well let's hope for 1.6. And if we can't get keep it to 1.6, okay, let's hope for 1.7. There's a sense in which recognizing that the question is what to hope for sort of fends off despair. It just you just shift where your hope is directed. And I, the other example is just thinking about aspects of my own life. So I, I have a uh, a chronic pain condition, and I don't think it's going to go away. So I think, well, there's a way of thinking about that where you switch between desperately looking for a cure, thinking, I hope I can fix this. And then when you can't, thinking, I despair. And now I think, no, what I, the question that's useful to me, the way of thinking about hope that's practically useful to me is I should think, well, I should hope that it doesn't disrupt my life too much in the next few weeks or that I get a decent enough night of sleep so I can enjoy going out to the that movie I was going to go to the next day. And just thinking in more constrained terms about where to direct hope. Anyway, that shift for me is is a kind of practical difference in how I relate to hope in my own life, that I, I, I kind of oscillate less between between you know excessive optimism and despair. It, does that connect at all with greater clarity on you know what you believe and what you value if you were thinking about that from a a philosopher and many people that are listening that are not philosophers this idea of really thinking deeply and philosophizing on a particular topic you know what how would you describe that at the at the end that's a great question i think there's this connects with really deep issues about the nature of philosophy, I think. So there's a sense in which a, a whole lot of philosophical activity could be described precisely in terms of getting clearer in moral philosophy, anyway, getting clearer on what our values are. I think there's very different ways that could go. And I've shifted in my own focus quite a bit from one to the other. So one, one way that goes is philosopher proposes abstract theory. And you think this is a kind of crisp, articulate, perhaps complicated theory. And sometimes that can be clarifying. For me, a lot more philosophical work now for me, and a lot of what I value in philosophy takes the form of gaining clarity by not by stepping back and constructing an abstract theory that you can then wheel into any different dilemma you face in life, but by just taking some problem you face and trying to really articulate and describe it crisply. And I think a lot of ethical reflection really takes that form. So that's one way in which when I think about the, the the project of writing a book about the hardships of life, I think there's a certain, you know, one kind of book would say, I have found the secret. Here is the key. And I'll just apply my key to a series of different locks. Like here's what it says about infirmity. Here's what it says about loneliness. 
And that isn't how I think of the the work of philosophy here. There are some general themes to bear in mind, like don't be distracted by the ideal life. Focus on living a good enough life in the circumstances you're in. Don't just think about being happy. Think about actually living well, engaged with reality. Those themes are constant. But if what you're aiming at is a kind of living well that's engaged with reality, then in any given case, in the case of any given hardship, a big, a, a central part of the philosophical work is just articulating in the way I think you're pointing to, like, what is the problem of hope? Or, you know, what, why is loneliness so hard? And by understanding that more deeply, bring into view a picture of how to feel about it and what to do about it. I, this is a, an idea I get from the, the novelist philosopher Iris Murdoch, who says, you know, I can only choose in the world I can see, in mm-hmm. the moral sense of see, that involves moral imagination and moral effort. I think that's really right. That a huge amount of work in responding to difficulties in our lives and the lives of people around us is just seeing what's going on clearly. And often seeing what's going on, really describing what's going on clearly enough to make sense of it is the better part of knowing what to do about it and how to react to it. So, so there's a way in which I think clarity could sound superficial, like you're just mm-hmm. making a few distinctions or nitpicking. But actually, I think there's a sense of clarity on which it's a, a real, if you if you can get to it, a real moral achievement to have clarity on what a problem in your life is or what a problem in the world is. Do you think that, as you mentioned, despair, hope and despair and things like that, of, um, I've read recently, I think it was The Meaning of Anxiety by Rollo May, quoting maybe Kierkegaard, that maybe a certain level of despair is just part of the human experience, maybe a normal level of despair, but basically maybe remaining hopeful in navigating your, your way through life. I think there's something that I, that's really right about that, which is that negative feelings more generally are not always to be avoided. Negative feelings are sometimes a function of really taking in reality. So if you weren't furious when you saw read the news, uh, you probably would be missing something. Or if you didn't feel grief at the loss of someone you love, if, if you really bought into the, the kind of stoic position that, well, there's nothing I can do about it, so I'll just detach from it, I think you'd be losing touch with reality, you wouldn't be in contact with something that really is difficult. So a certain degree of despair might be like that too, a certain kind of insistence on still being attached to things, even when you can't change them, and therefore being angry about them or despairing about them. I think that is part of living well. That's again, a case where I think the contrast between just feeling happy and living well is really vivid, that sometimes living well in touch with reality, responding to the world as we should involves hard feelings, involves difficult feelings. And that, you know, that that's part of what we should accept, not in the sense of, of saying, yeah, I'm totally okay with this, but in the sense of, of not um, fleeing from it and not sort of beating ourselves up about the fact that, that we have those feelings, because if we didn't, we'd be, we'd be missing something. Well, I love it. This has been great. I I am super grateful for your time, Kieran. We've made it to this final wrap-up question that we we ask everybody that comes on the show. And that is, 
you know, how do you define or think about wisdom in, in daily life? And maybe we've been talking about that the whole conversation, but answer that any, any way you like, please. I, I do think we've been sort of circling around it. And so maybe I can try to, to, to summarize some things, but also put them in, in, into sharper focus. So I do think wisdom in in the practical sense, the kind of wisdom of knowing how to feel, knowing what to do, is primarily a matter of discernment or attention or what Simone Weil, the, the philosopher who influenced Iris Murdoch, calls reading, close reading of the world, really sort of paying attention to the world and trying to figure out what's going on. And it's much more a matter of that, of that kind of focus and attention than it is of clever arguments. And I think there's a real challenge here to philosophy as a professional discipline, because I think the skills you're trained in by getting a PhD in philosophy are skills of clever argument. And they're not useless in achieving wisdom, but a central aspect of the skills that you need in, in trying to approach the world with wisdom are not really ones you're going to be taught in an academic seminar. And I I think it's good for philosophers to to be chastened by that thought, although I don't think the right response, and this is this is where I think some philosophy goes astray, is to say, well, since that's not part of what we're professionally trained in, let's just forget about it. I think philosophers are people too, and it's not that philosophy somehow prevents you from having being wise in, in describing the world. And I think actually a lot more philosophical reflection than we give it credit for has that form of discernment or attention to the world. So I think a lot of the really lasting achievements of philosophers that contribute to wisdom are new concepts with which to describe the world around us or conceptual lenses through which to see what's happening to us. And they may be associated with abstract arguments, but a lot of it is just having the the conceptual tool to describe what's happening. So I suppose the discussion of of loneliness and hope provides instances of that, but there's also you know one case I talk about in the book where I think this is really a, a kind of deep contribution of philosophy is the work that the political theorist Iris Marion Young has done on structural injustice, where there's a whole lot of arguments about it, but actually just having in your tool kit your conceptual framework the idea that there can be forms of injustice that emerge when people aren't individually behaving in unjust ways, but they just arise from how the system interacts. That's very clarifying. That is a way of seeing the world differently that philosophy can contribute to. So I think the the short answer is I think of wisdom as primarily about here describing the world in the right kind of attentive and accurate and uh, just way. And I think philosophy can contribute to that and that there, there's a lot of philosophical insight that is available to us and could be more available to us in seeking wisdom than than currently is. Well, beautiful. And again, I really enjoyed the book. As a reminder, it's Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. Where would you point listeners interested in learning more about you? So I, I am easy to find online. If you if you Google Kieran Setia, even if you spell it wrong, it will it will lead you to my web website. And I have essays up there. I have links to the book. I have I'm on Twitter at, at Kieran Setia. 
And there's, yeah, that has a link to the podcast and my Substack, and again, to the book. So uh, yeah, I, either Twitter or my webpage will, will point you to everything. All right. Love it. Well, we'll link everything in the show notes. Kieran Setia, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice.